Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. This is Chris Yeh speaking to you live from Palo Alto, California. And I am joined by a returning guest, Franz Alphonse, one of my classmates from the Harvard Business School class of 2000. Recently, we had our 20th virtual reunion. And this reunion took place in the beginning of June. And of course, at the time, in addition to the fact that we were together again, in addition to the COVID-19 pandemic, there was also, of course, the additional burden of the tragic murder of George Floyd, the protests around the country, and all the different emotions that people were grappling with. And it was something that we as classmates were all grappling with. Now, fortunately, France, you have been working towards empowerment of minorities economically. Uh, you have been grappling with these issues for most of your professional career. And you've expressed yeah. such optimism and such a, a great positive outlook on how to take the events of today and, and move them in a positive direction that I wanted to have you come on. So thank you so much for being willing to come on. Uh, first, talk to me about what your life has been like over the past couple of weeks, because not only do you have your new son uh, in, now right. just a few right. weeks old, you've been dealing with, I'm sure, lots of people calling you, asking you for your thoughts, asking you to share your opinions. What's life been like for you in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, well, I'll be I'll be very candid with you, Chris. Um, you know, if you've known me for um, you know twenty years now, over twenty years, and um, one of the things that that um, uh, you know I've, I've come to believe is that you, you got out of life what you focus on. Okay, and uh, the last two or three weeks, I, I can only characterize as an absolute blessing. Um, as a black man living in the United States today, to hear from uh, friends and colleagues and constituents and um, business partners, um, literally from all over the world, uh, far, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, London, England, Sydney, Australia, um, uh, all over the United States, every um, race and creed, um, reaching out um, simply to let me know that um, they acknowledge and see my humanity. And uh, it's been an absolute blessing. And it's been um, uh, quite eye-opening, um, to say the least. And um, I've welcomed uh, all of my friends and colleagues to reach out um, in solidarity, um, simply to express support for what's quite clearly an awakening and a shift in consciousness that our culture is going through right now. So it's just been absolutely extraordinary. Now, you mentioned this as an awakening, but clearly this is something you've been aware of pretty much your entire life. What sure. does it feel like to see the world suddenly opening its eyes, to see so many people who maybe didn't realize what the situation was coming to see things that they didn't see before? Yeah, there, there's no doubt um, there is um, uh, something shifting in the culture at the moment. And so much about what is coming to light and what is being embraced uh, uh, en masse in our culture, I took it as um, a foregone conclusion that um, a preponderance of our society would just never understand. And um, it's becoming clear that that's no longer true um, or that a larger and larger uh, percentage of our society is beginning to, to wake up. So I'll give you an example. I got a, a phone call from 
uh, one of my former business partners, and uh, uh, you know he, he has an a Asian culture background, and and uh, 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 we were very very close uh, for quite some time. We're still in touch, but but um, no longer formally in a business partnership. And he called me up, um, as many people have been calling, um, or emailing, or texting, and said, "Listen, you know, what's what's the reality here, right? What 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 am I? What have I not seen for the majority of my lifetime that everyone is is starting to wake up to here? Tell me the truth." And I had shared with him a story about um, how uh, very often in um, a traditional African-American household, it's, it's standard when you, you have a young black man that you're raising, when he becomes 14 or 15 or 16, uh, especially when they are about to drive, to have what we call, quote unquote, the conversation, right? Um, and it's, it's almost as um, anticipated and part of our culture as the, quote unquote, birds and the bees conversation except the conversation that black mothers and black fathers um, all too often have to have with their young black men as they're becoming old enough to drive is a talk about what happens when or if you're ever pulled over by the police. And it's, it's, it's almost um, a cultural norm in the African-American community. And, and you had this talk... Your parents had this talk with you when you were growing up. Not only did we have this talk um, when, when we were growing up, it was more than one talk. It was, it was virtually a lecture every single time they handed me the keys and I had to walk out the door. And tacitly what they were saying is that we live in a society that does not value your life as much as the lives of others and I want you to be careful. I want you to be on your best behavior. That's a tough okay. message to give your child and also a tough message to hear. Um, yes, but, um, you know, it was also, you know, being 16, it was kind of like, hey, okay, whatever, mom and dad, <laughs> right? But mm -hmm. it's, it's a sad commentary, um, but, but it's, a, it's, it's a conversation that virtually every black parent has had with their, with their teenage son. It's very, very common. And true to form, I've, I've had run-ins with the police. And believe me, in high school, um, you know, I was literally a Boy Scout, <laughs> right? And, you know, extremely focused on, uh, uh, you know, getting into the white college and, and all of those scenarios, okay? Um, I, you know, th there was no reasonable reason to expect that I would ever have a run-in with a police officer or with the law. And, um, you know, candidly, um, as a young black man growing up in Boston, it actually happened to an uncomfortable degree quite frequently. Mm. Quite frequently. And, 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 it's, and, and the frustration that the African-American community feels is that sometimes interactions that I myself had with police officers, sometimes they turn deadly. That's and now right. we're at a point where and now we're in a point in our society where not only, not only do they turn deadly, but we're now capturing it on video, right? Our technology is kind of caught up, right? So um, we find ourselves in a situation that we're in. And there's progress in as much as there is progress. And it feels like 
you believe that there is a chance that we're going to make progress here is being driven by this technology, by the, by the fact that people are seeing it with their own eyes, not that they ever needed to necessarily see it with their own eyes. They could have listened, but the fact that they are yeah. now being forced to see it makes a huge difference. That, that's exactly right. I mean, listening was always an option, but now it's being captured for the whole world to see on video, okay? Um, things that, that our community has, has been dealing with literally for decades. Now, um, there has been progress, to your point, right? When um, you get this, this overwhelming uh, outpouring and you see the protests that are clearly a cross-section of America, very well populated by young, old, white, black. And um, as a factual matter, you're, you start seeing some of the shifts in our culture. Virtually every Fortune 500 company has made a statement in support of reform or some type of reconciliation with our past. Capital has been deployed. Um, uh, we're finally getting to the point where police reform is um, on the books and there's more legislation that's on the way. There's been a spike in um, uh, book purchases around race, racism, white supremacy, and our legacy just in the last two, two or three weeks, a, a very significant spike and people wanting to read learn more and learn more about um, what's been going on and um, uh, uh, um, the realities of, of um, uh, the, our tragic past that we're still trying to reconcile. And we even have the NFL coming out and saying, hey, you know what? Um, maybe we should have listened a little bit more closely when our players tried to bring to our attention uh, the issues of police brutality which I, I think is just, I mean, just the NFL reaction alone um, was just an extraordinary about-face on this particular issue. Exactly, especially when you consider that the NFL is, A, extremely conservative league in general, both in terms of yep. its approach to societal issues and in terms of the personalities of, of its owners, many of whom are ardent supporters of President Trump. Yep. And because yep. and then, it has... And let's, 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 also, let's also include NASCAR there yes. that banned, banned the use of Confederate flags, okay? And what they're, what they're basically saying is, guys, you can argue for the fact that the Confederate flag is a reflection of your culture, okay? And no one's trying to take, take anything away from that. But as a factual historical matter, it was also the flag of uh, a Southern slave owners who sent their children to fight and die for the right to own other human beings. This, this uh, uh, symbolism can no longer represent what we stand for. And for the, for the um, NASCAR organization to come out and take that stand, that's obviously a shift. That's obviously progress. Okay? And um, um, you know, still a lot of work to be done, but we have to acknowledge that, that this is a, a positive development as well. Absolutely. And when I think about NASCAR actually enacting this ban, which, you know, if, if there's any stereotype, it's that the NASCAR fan base would be the most pro-Confederate, if you will. It's right. because, you know, they finally have acknowledged the fact that, well, listen, nobody's saying that this is not emblematic of some element of your culture. Whether or not it's right. true, you believe it to be true. However, right. your 
ability to proudly wear that symbol conflicts with the harm it causes for other people. This is not about exactly. you. This is about what it, ha what it causes in others. Right. And it's, it's also worth mentioning, um, you know, the, the debate around uh, the, other con the other Confederate symbols and statues, okay? No one is, is making an argument that, there's, uh, that these statues and these individuals and these symbols uh, are a part of people's cultures. Uh, if they choose to adhere to them, but it, it it was also in our fairly recent history that these statues in this particular case were erected specifically in response to the civil rights movement and in response to um, and in tandem with uh, the Jim Crow South that specifically and intentionally intended to suppress or intimidate, and in some cases terrorize, the African-American community. So if you look at when these statues were erected, they were erected not after the Civil War in some demonstration of uh, support and peacekeeping with our uh, uh, brothers and sisters to the South, but rather in the, in the early 1900s, when Jim Crow uh, really started to heat up, and then also, again, in the 50s and 60s, when there was an intentional uh, uh, backlash and um, uh, an intent to uh, intimidate uh, rising voices um, that were in support of civil rights. So when you put all that together, and that's our, that's our relatively recent history, okay? We have to reconcile that. And when we think about this, these are all symbolic changes, extremely important changes because of what they symbolize, but they are largely symbolic changes. On the other hand, there are probably also going to be structural changes. What are the things that you think need to happen, should happen, will happen to address the underlying unfairness? Yeah. Um, that's a terrific uh, question, Chris. Um, what I'll say is that there, I, there, there is a, a lot of work to be done. And um, I don't think that, that um, we should be under any illusions that, that um, we, can, we can have a racial uh, reconciliation with either one election or um, uh, one intervention. Um, I, I will say this in terms of what's most important, okay? And... Um, it's not something you can legislate, nor would I suggest that we try to do so. It's not something you can impose on other people, and obviously that, that's not the intent and, and wouldn't be um, a fruitful endeavor. Uh, what I will say is, um, in my opinion, what's most important and probably the thing that would be most healing, simply, simply listening with the intent to learn really listening with the intent to learn, with the intent to understand. Mm. And it's by far the most important thing that any one individual can do. And, and if there is going to be a cultural shift, by far um, the most important thing that our culture can do. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, um, I'm the, the youngest of, of five children. Um, and um, uh, when, when I was a very young man, um, uh, candidly, a, a lot cockier than I, I am right now, regrettably. And 
Um, uh, uh, I have um, uh, three older sisters and a twin brother. And uh, to my embarrassment, um, as I look back on it, um, uh, I come from a very accomplished uh, family, academically and professionally. Um, however, I wasn't above, as a young man, looking at my older sisters and saying, hey, you know, I did X, Y, and Z. Why can't you also do the same? And my sisters, I should mention, um, are uh, uh, you know, uh, substantially older than I am. My oldest sister is 12 years older than I am. I have another sister who's 10 years older than I am, and another one who's seven. One of my sisters is adopted. And uh, one of my um, uh, uh, favorite refrains um, would be to turn to my sisters and say, hey, listen, I did this. I want you to do you know, something similar. Or why can't you do something similar was my usual refrain. Mm. And, um, and looking back on that, you know, I, I, I look, look back on those remarks with, with such embarrassment, right, that I could say something like that to uh, my siblings and people that I love uh, um, out of pure ignorance before I fully understood what it was to walk in their shoes. Um, when, yes, we were born into the same family, but in, in, in a radically different season, <laughs> right? Yeah, you 12 know, years apart, that'd make a huge difference. Exactly. Especially difference. in Boston. Exactly, right? So, so my sisters were born in, in a different season of life, okay, when the family was in a different situation, and I was given a different set of opportunities, in many regards, an advantage and several advantages that they just didn't have, right? So my, my current practice today, not only when dealing with my siblings or um, uh, anyone at large, is tru truly to take a step back and say, let me listen with the intent to understand, with the intent to learn, with, with as much uh, compassion as I can bring to the table to understand what it is that they're processing and what they're going through. And without any exaggeration, I think that that approach would just be so healing and make no mistake about it, really what we need most here in this country is healing. And Absolutely. I encourage uh, everyone within the earshot of my voice to take that approach. And um, it's certainly one that I am practicing and, and trying to take and my endeavors as well. And I couldn't agree more with that. We are living in an age where people seem to view every conversation as a debate rather than a discussion. Right. And a debate is something where you're trying to win. And instead of trying to listen and understand, all people do is try to advocate and persuade. Right. But if right. everyone always starts with the basis that they are right and other people are wrong and they're going to cause them to see the light, then it's very difficult to make change. Whereas understanding is the thing that really drives empathy, which is the thing that drives ultimately an emotional change in mindset that hopefully leads to the kinds of changes in policy and law and incentive structures that we need. I, I, I read somewhere many years ago um, something that made a huge impression on me, and I, I, try to, I try to listen from using this framework 
um, that I had uh, heard about several years ago. And um, I forget exactly where I found it, but, but it was explained to me that all communication is either an expression of love or a call for help. Mm. And, and if, you, if you approach all communication, um, trying to figure out which bucket, which of those two buckets the communication is coming from, it really helps to, um, under the assumption that, that uh, this, is, this is the intent. You're, you're, you're either dealing with someone that is trying to express love in one, one way or the other, or is trying to, to express a call for help in one way or the other. And if you receive the communication that way, how would you change? How would you change your approach? And that's, that's honestly what I try to do as often as I can. Now, at the risk of causing even more people to reach out to you, what, what is the way that people should start with this? I mean, I feel like there are a lot of folks out there, and we saw this at a reunion. People are asking, what should I do? How can I do this? This is new for them. They're uncertain, which is very surprising for Harvard Business School graduates who are used to being right. very certain about everything, much like your younger self. But what approach right. should they take? What would be something that you would want someone to say to you if they wanted to listen, if they wanted to hear? Uh, and again, you may be exhausted from having to speak so much already, uh, but take us inside. Tell me what you think. Yeah. Um, what I would say is be ready and prepared to have a difficult conversation and don't be afraid of it. Because if you're not willing to have a difficult conversation, we're not going to be able to make progress. Mm. And um, to say the least, we're starting to have a difficult conversation now. We have many, many more difficult conversations to have. But get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. It's true in, in, in every human endeavor that um, in order to do anything extraordinary, in order to make any type of progress, you have to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Right? I'll, I'll, let, you in a, a little, I'll let, let you in a little secret, uh, Chris. Um, uh, as you know, I, I, I'm a very avid triathlete and, and um, have been doing triathlons for um, about 15 or 16 years now. But um, one of my motivations in being a triathlete is because every single race that I do, there's always a point where you, the, 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 the thought crosses your mind, my God, why am I doing this? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It, <laughs> right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what my training, there's always a point uh, on the swim where the thought runs across my mind, why did I even get in the water? <laughs> right? Right? And you have to push through that discomfort in order to get to the other side. And it's, it's the best emotional and spiritual training I think there is. And the same thing happens on the bike. There comes a point in, in the last third of the, uh, the bike component of a triathlon where my quads just start to burn. And just uh, reflexively, the thought runs across my mind, God, like how much longer before I can get off the bike? And the same thing on the run, right? We, we have to train ourselves to get to, to, to sit in that discomfort and push through it anyway. And, we, and believe me, there, there are many, many tough conversations to be had. 
and we're starting to have them now. Um, I'm very encouraged, um, and I, I welcome those conversations. Well, I think you're probably going to have even more of them after this. But as you said, <laughs> right. you right. welcome the conversation, and it is something which is so essential, like what you're doing right now, helping people understand what they can do to channel those feelings that they now have. Again, maybe they should have had those feelings before. You don't have to say that. I'm going to say that. But the fact that they have the feelings now, let's not let the opportunity pass. Let's transform mm -hmm. those feelings, that energy, into action. Mm -hmm. So with that, what are some of the things that you think? We operate in the world of business, obviously. Yeah. You're a businessman. And I'm a, a theoretically a businessman, but primarily a business author. But yep. what are the things that the world of business can do differently right now? What are the things yep. that we can do to capture this moment? Yeah, uh, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. And you, you know, Chris, that in, in my mission, I, I don't just work in mergers and acquisitions, but I work in the marriage of mergers and acquisitions and economic impact, right? And um, uh, in my work, um, it's, it's been an extraordinary privilege to work with the largest corporations in the world. And what I do is I work with Fortune 1000 enterprises um, whenever they have a, a mission-critical supplier in their supply chain that, for whatever reasons, is in need of a change of control or growth capital um, or new ownership, um, you know, new strategic direction, for whatever reasons, it, it organically needs private equity financing. Okay? What I do in my work and what my firm does is we work with that Fortune 500 enterprise to provide that financing but as long as we're providing the financing and we're, we're within this window where we can creatively develop a new strategic develop, develop, uh, uh, direction for the company, we also start asking questions around economic development, minority ownership, women business enterprise ownership, um, uh, uh, climate change and sustainability, all of these corporate citizenship objectives. We're in the business of not just engaging in an M&A transaction, but marrying that M&A transaction with these larger corporate citizenship objectives at the same time. And uh, uh, I think personally that our corporate friends um, are in an extraordinarily influential position. Okay? They have in, in immense power to influence the direction of our culture and positively impact our society simply one area in the area of supply chain excellence is one avenue to do so. And if we could just get a little bit more intentional about the activity that we're engaging in in these global supply chains and orient them towards addressing some of these corporate citizenship objectives at the same time, uh, I, I think that the times that we're in right now uh, lend themselves to that. And um, it's certainly possible. We've had extraordinary results. And um, uh, those same Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 executives are among my friends that have been calling me and uh, uh, asking me for um, uh, my thoughts and my thought leadership and my opinion as it pertains to the, um, the cultural climate that we're in. Um, I get the question all the time, what, could, what more could we be doing? Okay, let's start putting some of this, these dollars uh, to work 
um, but to do so at the billion-dollar scale with the full intent of having economic development um, in, in the African-American community and other communities um, that um, uh, candidly are suffering and um, uh, could use the support, but let's do it in a way that's sustainable and uh, uh, in a way that creates win-win-win situations across the board. And I think it's a brilliant strategy because what you're able to do is you're able to offer these corporations, like you said, a win-win situation. They're able right. to achieve many of their objectives, many of the things they want to do from a corporate social responsibility perspective, but they don't right. have to take on the risk of re-engineering their supply chain. They don't have to take on the risk of switching vendors or doing anything like that. They get to continue accessing the same supplier, but now that supplier right. is helping them achieve their corporate social responsibility goals. And that same supplier, because of the transaction, is now creating economic empowerment. That's, that's exactly right, right? If you, if you have a mission-critical supplier or a large supplier that's already in your supply chain, okay, and for whatever reasons, it organically needs growth capital or a change of control, okay, um, what, what we've devised, Chris, is the opportunity to say, okay, th there's a transaction going to happen here anyway, okay? We're, we're looking at an M&A um, event in, in any event, okay? Why don't we, we take a moment to transform this event into something that can have a far bigger impact as it pertains to minority business enterprise certification or MBE or women business enterprise certification, um, uh, broad scale uh, economic impact, opportunity zones, uh, HUD zones, um, climate change, and um, even technology, right? We're faced, um, uh, I've got a portfolio company right now that um, uh, could potentially benefit from a technological upgrade. Well, part of what, what I'm contemplating is, hey, it's a, already a mission-critical supplier to a large Fortune 500 company that's been working very closely with us. Um, we're doing all sorts of things as it pertains to economic development and MBE certification and, and um, uh, shifting the culture and, and embracing diversity and inclusion from the board level to the entry level. But at the same time, I'm also reaching out to Silicon Valley. And I'm saying, hey, listen, do you want distribution or do you want an off-ramp or, or a pipeline to Fortune 500 decision makers and or a platform to really, really demonstrate what your technology can do, okay? While at the same time, embracing diversity and inclusion in a way that's win-win. These are, these are things that we're working on right now. So just an extraordinary time. Um, I think we're in, in uh, a period of, of uh, a wonderful um, promise. Uh, I think we'd, we'd be, be naive to suggest that we're not also in a period of peril that we've got to be careful about, but I'm optimistic. Last question, France. What yeah. do you want to tell your two young sons? You mentioned, for example, the cycle. Your parents had the conversation with you. What do you hope to have happen when it's time for you to have the conversation with your sons, which will happen in about 10, 12 years or so, 10 to 15 years? What do you want to have changed by then? And what are you going to be telling them? Well, the, the first thing that, that comes to mind, and, and it's, it's one of the reasons that it's just been so touching uh, to hear uh, from, from uh, friends and colleagues and, and uh, to your point, Chris, uh, former classmates, um, 
there, there, there is a, a book in the African American community called The Invisible Man, and um, it's it's uh, an iconic piece of literature in the African American community uh, and culture. Um, I encourage everyone uh, to pick up a copy of, of um, uh, Invisible Man. And then the other book that I would recommend is uh, Race Matters by Cornell West to um, to really understand the perspective and and um, uh, to get just some insight into um, how our legacy of, of racism has been uh, woven into our society and to get a sense of, of the scale of the work that we still have to do. And again, progress has been made, um, but if we want to have a conversation, um, uh, you know, some of this literature could be, be very helpful. And then Chris, um, to answer your question, um, uh, referencing the invisible man, um, you know the thing. The thing that that um, has just been so touching is the extent to which um, you know you you have friends that you've known for decades and colleagues and business associates who stop and take a moment and say, "Hey, listen. To the extent that I haven't seen a part of you, uh, I, I either see you or I'm willing to do the work." Right to take down the barriers that have prevented me from seeing you in the past. I've even had friends say, "Hey, listen, will you do the same for me?" And the answer is that, of course, I would. Mm. Right? Uh, it's it's been um, uh, uh, deeply touching, uh, to say the least. And it's also kind of helped me to confront um, uh, times or moments, uh, or or even the present day when um, I haven't even seen myself. And um, uh, 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 the conclusion that I, I have to arrive at is, is um, that we're we're in some type of awakening right now, and and um, um, it's it's heartwarming. As it pertains to Ari and Ilan, hopefully they'll hear this uh, this interview um, uh, in you know I guess 15 years um, when um, I'll be potentially hang, uh, handing them the uh, the the, key to the car if we're still driving cars, <laughs> um, you know uh, uh, at a right. Uh, on a regular basis um, in 15 or 20 years. And um, it is my sincere hope that um, I won't have to have the conversation with them, candidly. And um, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's just not something that I, I feel uh, compelled to have to sit down with them and, and uh, discuss. And I think that if we capture the energy from this moment and everyone is able to act now and make these kinds of key policy and structural changes, perhaps for the first time, I feel that it's possible that you won't have to have that conversation. Well, I appreciate that, Chris, and um, uh, let's, uh, let's continue to move in that direction. Now, a few last matters. The first thing is, I'm glad that you mentioned Cornell West because one of the things that Cornell West has done is he's had a series of joint appearances with the conservative scholar, Robert George. The two of them are good friends, despite having very different outlooks in terms of philosophies. And yet mm -hmm. they model the ability to really listen to the other and engage with people that you disagree with in mm -hmm. a polite and productive way. And they have a lot of their dialogues that are available on YouTube for anyone who wants to see them. The second thing is, there are people who are listening to this that are not our classmates. 
and we didn't actually mention the name of your company or how they should get in touch with you if, in fact, they happen to have a supply chain that they want to optimize and to achieve some of their corporate social responsibility goals. So how should they reach you? Um, absolutely. I'm more than delighted to, uh, to provide my email if it's appropriate for me to do that. Um, my email is uh, my email is falphonse at apcholdings.com. Um, the name of our company is uh, AP Capital Holdings. Um, and again, the um, email is falp is in pottery, h is in house, o-n-s-e at apch.com. Excellent, Francis. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I am looking forward to having you on again more times in the future, and especially in 15 years, because I want to know how your conversation <laughs> with Elon went. I will. Uh, and it'll, it'll be with both Ari and Elon, but uh, I, I will most certainly take you up on that, Chris. Wonderful. You and Thank I, you, you so much. You and I will be, you, you and I will be good friends uh, uh, even in um, another 15 or 20 years. Well, the only problem will be I'll look old and decrepit, and you'll still look the same <laughs> as ever. <laughs> right, right. Well, we'll we're going to have to hang around and see, right? Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, Chris. Talk to you soon.